Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the conversation with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. And on this week's episode, we have a special guest to discuss an important and timely subject. And Henrietta, why don't you launch us into this? Yes, today I'm I'm really, really excited. We have a really special guest to talk about probably one of the most important things I think we've spoken about thus far on the podcast. Um, and I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Alicia Moreland-Kapia. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we dive into what we're going to talk about, why don't, why don't you just kind of give our audience a little bit of context around your work and, and who you are so that we can really frame the conversation under that level of understanding? Absolutely. Well, first, I want to thank um, you, Henrietta and Jason, for inviting me to have a conversation with you today. Uh, I am a double board certified addiction psychiatrist and have spent over the last close to a decade working in at the intersection of trauma, uh, substance use, and mental health. And much of my work has also centered around helping systems and people heal. And that's really perfect because um, what we're talking about is obviously framed around the system of fashion. But what we're really going to dive into today is Black trauma and really how that impacts and informs the conversation around specifically around what's happening in fashion right now, where it's really been exposed that fashion is institutionally racist and a lot of stories are coming to the forefront. And one of the things that really inspired this was when Jason and I wrote our Business of Fashion op-ed, I literally had hundreds of DMs, emails, text messages uh, of people talking about their really bad and traumatic experiences with racism in the workplace. And I was really also uncovering my own trauma. So I wasn't in the best, I didn't know what to say to people. I wasn't in the best place. I was dealing with my own stuff. And I really wanted to, Jason and I really wanted to use this podcast, this platform as a tool for healing and learning and understanding. So we really wanted to speak to you about digging into the deeper issues of Black trauma and fashion. I think this week particularly, we've, we've been hearing a lot about it. But I think much like anything else in terms of the way that fashion uses terminology, I think we want to dive into like, well, what about it? What about Black trauma? What does that mean? How do we unpack it? How do we talk about it? How do we explain it? And how do we find the tools to heal and to protect ourselves? Because a lot of us still have to be in these really dangerous workspaces. So that's why we're really excited to speak to you, because I think this race issue in fashion, much like anything else, ironically, is not just a black and white issue, uh, no pun intended. So we're excited to dig in. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. That I mean, that's a beautiful frame. I think when I had the chance to speak with you, Henrietta, sort of in our, our time of preview, one of the things that I mentioned that I think is timely and important is around this time, we have just literally less than two days ago laid Mr. George Floyd to rest in his third service. And the whole nation, the whole entire world grieving, the whole entire world sitting captive and understanding, and for the first time having to experience a deep-seated emotional pain that Black citizens have experienced for a lifetime. And I couldn't help but wonder that, you know, Mr. George Floyd being the catalyst. And it's interesting, we've been at many tipping points 
at many several points of, of, of history, right? When the Black Lives Matter movement started mm-hmm. uh, around Ferguson, a lot of folks said that we're at a tipping point. When Rodney King was beat in Los Angeles, many mm-hmm. folks said that we were at a tipping point. And I believe that that language, while important, I think we've got to get beyond just the tipping point and it has to translate into meaningful action. So after all the cameras are gone and the lights are out, the real question becomes who will be there to do the real work that's required to save, preserve, and protect Black lives. And so I believe that this conversation is imperative. And one of the things that we have to look at, police brutality and the system of criminal justice absolutely has to be transformed. And we also have to continue to have the conversation about the other systems that matter. When we look at any public, from any public health frame, if we look at racism as a public health threat, when you look at anything that is a public health threat, it means that we have to look at all and analyze all of the factors that contributed to the fact that it is a threat and then actively work to prevent it and in many cases eliminate it. So if we look at social determinants of health and we look at a driver of many of the country's racist practices, what what lies beneath the subtext is poverty, inability to be upwardly mobile, not feeling safe, basic needs not met. So when we look at the world of fashion as a system, because I think what we're going to have to do is look at every system, education, workplaces, we have to look at healthcare. All of these are systems that warrant reevaluation because they are systems that have traditionally and historically harmed Black citizens. And so the real question will become, we, we saw the, the officer put a knee on Mr. Floyd's neck and stole his last breath. And I'm saying, if we think about the metaphor of a knee on the neck, the education system has been the metaphorical knee on many young Black children's mm-hmm. neck in this nation. They have destroyed and killed many young Black citizens' dreams. That has to change. Workplaces have put their metaphorical knee on Black citizens' necks for so long. That has to change. The nation has said, let us breathe. And we mean that, both literally and figuratively. When this country was founded, the Declaration of Independence, and it's appropriate because we're getting ready to go into Juneteenth Mm -hmm. to think about what, what the freedom of the slaves meant, but 1776, we can go before that, but I want to start there. And I want to start at the second paragraph that tells us, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then I want to move forward and says, among these, it says, we all, we all should have inalienable rights. And what did that include? It said, among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every single Black citizen in this country, around the world, We have the right. We're only asking for the right to live, to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. That that, that is a promise. We're wanting wanting America, we're wanting every country to uphold its promise and commitment to allow us to live, to pursue happiness, and to be free. That That is not a huge requirement. So when we think about systems, we're saying we effectively have to deconstruct We effectively have to create safety where folks are. We effectively have to create the conditions for every single person to thrive. And I'll describe what trauma is, but I want to just say this last thing and I want to, I'm going to take a breath and a pulse and a pause (laughs) because I want to see if there are any thoughts about it. But the last thing I want to say about this is in this particular time as we frame the discussion, as I think about what is going to be required to move us forward afterwards, it is simply not enough for a business an organization to just make a statement yes. 
or to hire a black face. That's unacceptable. That's the bare minimum. This tokenism will not be the antidote. Tokenism cannot be the antidote to racism. Tokenism, it can only exacerbate the issue. If workspaces are serious about preserving, protecting, and, and keeping Black lives, helping them be upwardly mobile, the conditions have to be created to allow folks to get beyond just surviving and to be able to thrive. And I'll, I'll stop there. Um, on that note, you know, creating those conditions for us to, to thrive and to be part of that upward mobility. Yes, we have to define that trauma now because effectively we came to this subject because this is the hurdle that us as Black people has faced in culture. But I don't know that we all have the same definition of this trauma. I see it as a, a deep emotional wound, you know, probably brought on from, from a toxic environment. But I don't, I don't know that we all share a definition of what this Black trauma looks I like. Think, Can you help us to define to interject, that, doctor? I think before, before we get into that, I think sorry. what you've just set up is actually really incredibly important. And I say that because there is some misunderstanding about why this avalanche has happened in fashion specifically, given that it originated with the idea and the problems of police brutality in America specifically. So there's a lot of rhetoric around like, is this a European problem? Why are we going so hard in fashion? Fashion is is kind of tangential to this issue. And actually everything that you have just set up is exactly why we are having this, essentially this revolution within our industry, because all of those ideals are like essentially the tenets of fashion and all of those systems that are problematic in the world and in culture are absolutely reflected and mirrored in fashion. And so I think that the overall exhaustion of what's happening with the death of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and everyone that came before has really actually triggered a response in our industry where enough is enough and we're identifying trauma across the board, what it's like to be stopped by the police, but also what it's like to suffer microaggressions in the fashion workspace. And I think it's a real culmination and almost climax of everything that's happening systematically, culturally, personally, to basically land at this point and land on fashion's doorstep. And I just think it's really important to frame that because I'm kind of sick of this idea of people not understanding the parallels of how what's happening in the world at large can be concentrated and impact what's happening in fashion because it seems so tangential and superfluous and we're making clothes and it's not really a, a thing. And I think that the way you've set it up around this idea of systems, values, ideals, and equality and equity, I think really allows us to move forward in a way that like, if you don't understand what we're talking about, you're, you're crazy, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely, I appreciate the sentiment. And, and Jason, I want to answer your question because I think it dovetails really nicely on that really, really beautiful frame that you've provided, Henrietta. And, and our goal today is to, to put a picture in that beautiful frame. So I want to, I, I believe what, what, what we want and what we desire, at least what I desire. I do a number of trainings. I did mention early on because I, you know, I, I also feel one of the things that we have to do is shift the narrative. We will know that Black Lives Matter and are valued. And I'm going to get to the, the defining trauma when, when you're hired to take a job when everything is going well, when you become the leader 
of an institution when things are going <laughs> yeah. well. Not to be the cleanup man. Or, not to be the cleanup man. Or not when your hand is forced right. by an entire exactly. um, industry. Exactly. Yeah. Do you hear what I'm saying? Not to be the, I'm not hiring you as a black face to be the cleanup man or woman. I'm hiring you because your credentials and your competence demand it, right? So that's when we know that we will completely be valued, right? When you can be respected and when we change the narrative and the expectation, when we say to institutions and systems that we will no longer allow them to operate in the soft bigotry of low expectation. We know of our own greatness and excellence. Someone, Nichelle Smith, who is an editor, she is the editor of the investigations team, coordinating editor of the investigations team at USA Today. She had mentioned, we were not brought from Africa because we didn't have anything to offer. We were brought from Africa precisely because we did have something to offer. And when citizens who are Black get to the point where they understand their value, it changes the way that they interact with the world and how they show up. Now, I want to get to the the trauma because I do also believe, Jason, that we are more likely to change when we understand what we're being asked, but when we also have a shared understanding of a definition. So I'm going to explain it in this way for, for our listeners. I typically ask folks this question. Jason and Henrietta, have you ever been afraid? Yes. Okay. Do we know yeah. what that feels like? Is it, are you comfortable when you're afraid? No. Are, what, are, are, you, are no. you thinking straight when you're afraid? No. Are you able to do calculus no. when you're afraid? I mean, I, I go down a whole <laughs> line of questions. So I'm asking you about particular behaviors and actions, right? Things that everybody, but here's the deal. You've just described what it's like to be afraid, you know, what it's like, what fear feels like for you and afraid. But here's the beautiful thing. Fear is a shared human condition. Every single person, I don't care if you're rich, if you're not so rich, if you live in the mountains, if you live in the hills, if you live in the valley, every single human being, it's what marks us as human beings is the fact that we all have been afraid in our lives. And fear is a natural human proclivity and it allows us to respond appropriately right? And if you could see me, I have air quotes, appropriately to a perceived or real threat. So it's appropriate for our heart rates to go up, for us to not maybe be breathing, for us to not be thinking straight, for us to be in a place of utter fear and sheer terror. And we should be Mm -hmm. in a place where we're seeking safety. In survival mode. In survival mode. That's what the fear response does. And it serves a purpose or it's supposed to. But then I ask this question, now that you understand because you've personally experienced fear, you have an understanding of what that feels like personally, then I ask us to build on that. This is an exercise in adult learning. So I said, okay, you've understood that once the fear, once the threat is gone, perceived or real, we should all come back down to baseline, right? Our heart should be, our heart rate should decrease. Our breathing should be better. We should not be in a, in a, in a state of fight or flight. And we should not be in survival mode once the threat is gone. But, but then I say, and people say, oh, yes, mm-hmm. I get it. I've been in rooms of thousands of people who said, yes, I know what it's like to be afraid and it's not a comfortable feeling. Then I ask them, if you can understand that, can you understand what it might feel like to be in a state of fear 24 7, 365 days of the year. And people gasp. No, I can't imagine. Oh, my word. And then I go further because now we've got shared understanding. People now understand that there's a connection between fear and, and, and something else that's coming. So I say to them, imagine fear that never turns off. 
that's the neurobiological definition of trauma. Wow. Always mm. in survival mode. And you just Ooh. described to me what it's like to be afraid. I'm not thinking straight. I can't manage. But now I am to be subject to racism all the time is like being in fear 24-7, 365 days of the year. It is a form of trauma. That's what it is. Because now as a human being, every institution and system is made up of people. Systems don't change unless people change, and people don't change unless they feel something. And that's the basic premise of my work. If I can get you to feel what I feel, nothing in history has ever changed amongst comfort and convenience, nor has it changed in the absence of feeling. When something becomes salient to you, when you understand it, we increase the risk that you are willing to change it. So when I tell people and help them to make the connection between fear and trauma, they're like, we get it. We get it. So now what do we have to do? It's now every institution's responsibility to then create safety for all of its members. And, and I, can, I can start to give some of the details, but then I'm going I'm to do a Toni Morrison on y'all. <laughs> I wrote a book. It's called Training for Change. I'm going to say, if you want all the answers, it's in my book and you can buy it. But listen, <laughs> but I'll, I'll pause. And we're going to add the link in the show notes because this already, in this like quick 10, 15 minutes, I already feel seen yeah, I and heard and... This is this is the magic, and I think that one of the things that you say that's so that's so poignant and so interesting is that we can identify and name the the overt racism, right? Like I didn't get this job because of X, or like you know I was up for a promotion. My white counterpart with less experience was up for a promotion. She got it. I could attribute that to racism. I think the thing when you talk about fight or flight, and when you talk about survival mode is the things you can't name and identify that feel like they're in your head. And that's those microaggressions, those things that you can't name, those things that you can't identify, those things that you can't necessarily speak on. And also, uh, as in addition to microaggressions, they're like having to constantly hold the space to make white people in fashion feel comfortable, you know, minimizing certain uncomfortable conversations or overlooking certain conversations to make them feel comfortable. All of those things also induce trauma. Like those things are also traumatic. And I think that is also the challenging part when we talk about systemic racism in the workplace, because they're often, the things that are causing trauma, often the things that you can't necessarily identify, put your finger on, oh, it's on your head, you're being overly sensitive, or oh, there she goes being angry, there she goes making it a black issue. Like it's all of those things that just, it's like a death of a thousand paper cuts, right? And that is almost the thing that makes it more challenging because we don't even really know how to address them within these systems more more often than not. I think it's a good point. And I want to make this point. To have, I've often asked the question, it's okay to be a woman for the most part. You can be a woman and you can be angry. But in this country, what has been the narrative that, that I'm saying is false and we need to deconstruct is that you can't be an angry black woman. You can be everything, but you can't be. And I'm saying if we get to a point where we tell citizens that they cannot fully address or navigate the full range of their emotions, that is a kind of dehumanizing that can no longer exist. For you to tell me or to put me in an emotional box or an emotional prison and say, you can only demonstrate these particular emotions so that I feel comfortable is a form of dehumanizing. 
And so we, we, we have talked about and as we move forward in this new world that we are wanting to construct and that we must because, because humanity can't survive if change doesn't happen immediately. So it will happen. But in that, we have the opportunity to co-construct something so powerfully beautiful that every single citizen can, can thrive. And it has to include, the base has to include socioeconomic opportunity. That, that means that you should be able to uh, run the industry and you should be able to make just as much money as your counterparts and to be able to contribute as greatly and your voice should be elevated in that and amplified. You should be able to walk into a building and feel seen, heard, respected, and valued. Before we can move to specific, um, you know, I, I think everybody's ready to, you know, just, you know, mark off the checkbox. We're, we're done. We're now anti-racist. And I'm saying there has to be built into the foundation, right? Because the, the buildings that, have, that were burned down in, in these protests slash riots slash looting, the buildings have burnt down to the ground are really the symbol. It's the symbol. It's symbolic for what the structure we really need to burn down. And that's racism. That's systemic racism. The buildings can be replaced and they should. And I'm not condoning the activities of, of burning down buildings. I'm saying I'm saying it's possible to have multiple things mm-hmm. be true at the same time. I'm saying that it's true for people to be really so angry and so hopeless and so done and fed up that, that they could burn down a building because they don't see the building as having value and they see it's a projection you don't you don't see me as having value so i don't see what you believe has value having value so it is a it, there's a deeper message and my plea to america and to the world is to see with a third eye to hear with a third ear and to be sensitive to the cries of people because my question is not why the violence it is why the pain and when we can get to the point where we as human beings are willing to acknowledge and sit with and be with that pain, we will all hear. Well, doctor, I have to say, that is the point that I am resting on. Because in many ways, I don't feel that our community, I feel, for example, this period feels like we're firing in, in so many directions, that that rage has really come to the surface. But I do not know that in our community that we have a wonderful understanding and definition of what is going on inside of us. We may know that there is rage brewing and that, you know, that there's anger that has come to the surface, but I don't know that we have a clinical understanding of what is going on. And I have to say, in terms of like addressing the systems, in in terms of fixing the systems, I just think that we are so wounded, speaking in respect of fashion, that we're not even quite there yet. We haven't understand the local the local implications of, 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 of the trauma that, that we're living in to be able to address them in the workplace, hence continued to be silent. Hence, someone like myself normalizing that fear that you speak about when I still walk into a store. I'm trying to make myself non-threatening. I'm trying to show all mm-hmm. of my hands to make mm-hmm. sure that it looks, to, to make it look like I'm not taking anything. And all of those kind of things, there are such, there's, so, so many examples yes. around this sort of shrinking in. I've been calling it this for some time. 
this shrinking existence that myself as a black man lives in this country. I just think that there's so much about that profile that we as black people don't understand. So I don't necessarily think that we're at such a point of, you know, tremendous understanding to fix the problem. And let me go on on a tangent just, uh, just for a second here. You know, in the way that rap music, for example, or hip hop music, I think about that kind of the messaging that they put forth and some of them, obviously I'm not speaking um, in a blanket blanketed way here, but some of that messaging, I think like to put that messaging back on our community, you cannot be aware of the trauma that you're ultimately living. Like there has to be some sort of blind spot that's going on there to have us continue to do the same thing. And you know, the, the, the whole point of hurt people, hurt people I don't know that as people we know how hurt. I, I we think really you're spot are. on, and I think that that's why this is a time when folks are talking about a time for reckoning. It's a time to get on the path to healing. Here's the thing: I don't get to tell you, Jason, or you, Henrietta, how quickly or how you should grieve. But what I want to point out is that we are in a process of grieving, and in that process, anger is very much a part of that process of grief. Eventually, you get to a place of acceptance, but I don't get to tell you how fast, how quickly, and and, and I actually don't get to tell you to get over it either, because I think that that's also a part of the conversation. Like, hurry up and heal. We gotta, we gotta move forward. I I, I want to make sure that you hear me clearly. That that is not what I'm suggesting, and no one. But should fundamentally, be I'm sorry Are, to interject. That I yep. think that is the yes, large please. problem. That's the system, the fashion system in which we exist, where we are often told, get over it, we're not talking about it. How we're seen and not heard plays into how we act. And then that suppression kind of comes out in a different right. way. So this idea of, you know, you kind of gave us permission to be angry. Literally the one thing that most or if not all black women in fashion, and I'll actually go as far as to say black people in fashion, we go so far to not be the angry black person because it's not it's not heard. It falls on deaf ears by virtue of that. I feel uncomfortable now. Everything is done. And we see that because we see that when our white counterparts say the exact same thing, in, with, with that exact same rage or that exact same attitude or whatever, it's heard and received in a different way. So we almost kind of contort ourselves to move through these spaces and these systems to not be perceived as angry Black people because we know that our words go even more unheard and that does impact our upward mobility and then that glass ceiling gets lower and lower and lower because it is about how we're perceived and that ultimately is, it, it frames our entire trajectory. Um, so, is there any way you could talk more about that kind of uh, permission to be angry? Because I don't really, I'm struggling to see, based on how I've been conditioned, how that can Absolutely. exist for the, for the healing that we're talking about. Absolutely. I think it, that, that ties into some of, and, and dovetails into some of what I think Jason was alluding to as well. And that is, we, I, how can you heal what you don't recognize and see, right? And, 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 and what, what is the process that we're in and what are we asking for? What we have seen all around the world in Oslo, Norway, in London, in, I, I mean, just about every single, you know, continent in Africa, we have seen folks saying we are, what has to be at the center of what we do is humanity. And what we know is that traditionally there are studies on this. Black pain and black tears in the past have not moved people to action. 
Even hundred percent. But this, but this time around, Ooh. there was something about eight minutes and forty six seconds of a black man who, who Reverend Al in his eulogy in Houston said that God took a rejected stone and made him the cornerstone of an entire movement. And that's the truth. A common man. He wasn't an attorney. He wasn't a doctor. He's a common man. And 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 Mr. Floyd forced all of the world to come to grips with the fact that they have ignored for years Black tears and Black pain. And we have said it is no longer acceptable to do that. So this mm-hmm. is different. This is vastly different because we have said and shown and what has been demonstrated when you saw eight minutes and 46 seconds and this man called out for his mama, not mother, mama. And we know what that means. That broke the hearts collectively of mothers across this world. And for the first time, Black pain is being Mm -hmm. seen, it's being validated, and we can't ignore it. So I want you to hear that and to not, and, and I want the fashion world to hear that. And if the fashion world in any system is interested in becoming stronger, better, and to have longevity, they too have to reconcile and to deal with and to manage and to see and to appreciate and to validate Black pain. And then to create spaces that allow Black individuals and citizens to heal. And as I said, I, I, I have some very specific examples in the book, but I, I started the conversation a little bit. It's how do we create an environment where everyone feels like they belong, that they are seen, that they are heard, that they are valued, and that their feelings matter. Because it is a form of dehumanizing to tell someone that they can't feel the full range of their emotions. And what I was wanting to complete to say is that grief is a process that every human being has gone through. We have all lost something at some point. We know what that feels like. We know eventually we get to a place that this is not what I wanted to say. The point I too I wanted to make, Henrietta and, and, and Jason, is that this is not about asking you to get over something. This is about helping us all reconcile the fact that we all live in dichotomous states where there are parts of our lives that are going great and there are also parts at the same time that are not going so awesome. The goal is not that we never suffer. The goal is not that we never have hard times. The goal is not that we don't lose things. The goal is, is that we, we, we find a way to peaceably coexist with these two realities. Is that that things suck and they are awesome at the same time. That is life. That is right. fashion. That is fashion as well. But to that point of dichotomy, Doctor, I, yes, there is a tremendously positive side to this conversation as well. While I was talking about aspiring in multiple directions, what Black people have exhibited in this period mm-hmm. is tremendous strength. Exactly. It's not just, you know, unbridled rage. There is strength in the collective. There's strength in the expression. So we also have that's to right. talk about that strength in the face of, right. of trauma that's and right. how but that's powerful that is. Right, And that is the acknowledgement that m- multiple things can be true mm-hmm. at the same time. And the question is not whether or not you and I will ever suffer. Mm-hmm. The question is, will we learn to suffer well? That's, li- that's life, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and, and now, a part of that discussion, an extension of that discussion, and I'm so incredibly grateful, is we're not just going to be singing about we shall overcome. We must. 100%. Or but do that's we what not? I'm saying. To piggyback off of Jason's <laughs> question, I think we have a lot of these internet and internal conversations amongst ourselves. And so everything that you've said, 
I, I'm so here for it. And I really, I get it. I understand it. And we're, you know, we're exhausted because we're only, we're, we're always disproportionately impacted and doing all the work. But mm-hmm. fundamentally, the systems are set up in such a way that it makes it very difficult to have these conversations. I mean, when you look at what's happening in fashion now, um, not to be the Debbie Downer, but, you know, we've seen it kind of turn into a marketing activation. Everyone's saying the same thing on the same black tiles. We're going to diversify our hiring practices and we're listening and we're learning. There's a lot of the same rhetoric, but I don't really know what it means because, you know, a lot of people, their hands are forced. A lot of people are being uh, exited. You know, they're leaving their positions because of accounts of racism. But the... The, the culture doesn't really change. I, I, I'm wondering how do we foster these, these inroads sure. with the establishment in place, with our white counterparts, with allies who want to do better and really be a part of this movement. Like, they're such uncomfortable conversations to have. And I, like I said before, we've really invested in how we're seen and, and kind of holding more space for white people to be comfortable and so for me, I'm wondering how all of thing you're saying can actually be actionable within systems that don't allow for that to happen. They've historically never allowed for that to happen. So while this definitely is a watershed moment, there's still some kind of, you know, there's respectability politics, there is personality and ego conflicts, there are certain barriers to this healing. And I think that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, how do we penetrate all of that? Because even within our own community, there's respectability politics going on when it's, where it's like, you can't call them out. You can't go in there acting all angry or I know how to get in those rooms. And we're almost having these conversations amongst ourselves sometimes about how best to get a seat at the table to bring these issues forward. So what are your thoughts on that to work within a system that doesn't work for what we're talking about fundamentally? Sure. There, there are m- multiple. So the first I'll say is I'm not interested in an ally. I'm interested in an accomplice because <laughs> that's a different level of responsibility and accountability. So I want to so change that. So I, want you to be my ally. I like that. I want you to be, I want you to be my co-conspirator. So that, that means that there's a different level of responsibility. Oh God, that's brilliant. Yes. I love, I love how you raised that. And paint that picture for me. Show us how different that is, as you said, from, uh, from an allyship. I, I think that sends a whole yeah, different message means, when you're talking means, about a, a co-conspirator. Here's where a lot of folks are struggling. Today in the streets, I see, you know, and I'm saying universally, we see some of our colleagues who are laying on the ground on bridges for eight minutes and or taking a knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And they're holding up signs that say Black Lives Matter. Sorry, can you hold but on? The, the, the concerning and, and the... the <laughs> it's fine. I have kids too. You're okay. <laughs> so I have a, I have a three-year-old. She's she's doing poop. But <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah, oh, just okay. to interrupt listen, you. I, we have. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I just wanted. I just wanted to, uh, the audience to pick gladly. up everything you were saying and, and not get distracted. By, so I do apologize. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, don't. Please don't. And that's another thing. We are human beings, and we are multiple people. And it, I, we didn't talk about intersectionality, but Crenshaw was on MS on MSNBC today talking about that. We are multiple things. We're mothers. We're fathers. We're partners. We're oh, you know. Thank so you. you're, no apologies thank you. for that at all. Not at all. And it was a cute little voice. It's just that's actually a reminder of life, and we should be reminded about those things. Right. And I, I wish some of I us know. as adults would go back to some of our childlike tendencies because it, I think we'd all be better, actually. But that's beside the point. Uh, I want to <laughs> get back to this point. I was saying, oh, I think where yeah. most folks were, here's what, it, here's what it looks like, or I think the discussion we have to have. There are a number of our colleagues who have been on laying on the faces of bridges, kneeling for eight minutes and 46 seconds and holding their signs, Black Lives Matter, and putting it in their windows and driving down the car. And they're saying it hashtag on their Facebook pages. And that's, that's incredible. But I think where the conundrum is and where the confusion was is that some folks are saying, where were you three months mm-hmm. ago in the boardroom when I needed your support to speak up right then and there for me, to protect me and to protect the vitality of my opinion um, and to support me. Right. And so an ally is you can hashtag and go back to the shell of your comfortability, right? Uh, a co-conspirator is someone who is ready and willing to roll with you in all of the discomfort, to speak up in the moment, to share the burden of the stress of having to be the speaker. It's when you are with me in all of it, not just in some of it. And as you are with me and we're co-creating and co-constructing a new world together, it means it, it doesn't mean that you say you yeah. support me and then give me money exactly. to do the work. No, we got to do the work together. That's the difference because you're still putting the labor on me. I'm saying, haven't yeah. hasn't this country enjoyed uh, hundreds of years of my free labor? Now we're laboring together. So 100%. you can see how tired I've been. Right. So it's a different, it's a different level of expectation I, for participation. That's such an interesting point because and I do I've like. been struggling with allyship because I feel like we're almost well, gonna get I, to that point where it's like, I'm damned if I do and I damn I'm damned if I don't. And I think it is that vantage point of we are in this. We don't have the choice to switch on or switch off. This is happening to us. I can't not be black. I can't not be seen the way I'm seen in these spaces. And so I think that one of the frustrations is this like switch on, switch off. Like, okay, so now this is a movement. I'm on this energy with you. But actually when it doesn't serve me or when it's not incumbent on me to to do something, I'm a fallback and that you do this. Or all of a sudden I don't quite understand what you're talking about. You know, and there are so many, there are so many layers Mm -hmm. to allyship Mm -hmm. that feels very inconsistent for me personally, but then it's also like, I could also see why that is because also if you're not in it, you're not in it. But a lot of my thinking now is if you're going to be about it in private, be about it in public. So I've been getting a lot of behind the scenes allyship of like, yeah, that's some bullshit. And like, can you believe this toxic one? And I'm like, don't say that to me. I'm aware. I was telling you guys, like say it to the people in power because I definitely believe that, you know, there's this whole past the mic initiative, which I do very much think is true. Unfortunately, we're in a space where it is just believed and heard when it comes from our white counterparts. So I do feel like it really is incumbent on them to mm. fight the fight with us, not necessarily for us, but definitely with us because that mm-hmm. carries a different weight and a different power where if we're in it together, yep. it helps to limit the amount of emotional labor and hard work that we have to continue to do to fight this fight. 
But I think there is movement in, you know, fashion is largely white. So just by virtue of having yep. true yeah. accomplices, not just allies, we're going to get there faster because yep. I do think that it's not right. just our problem. Exactly. You know? It's a public health problem. It is, it's the world's problem. And I'll make this point as well, uh, even with mm-hmm. coronavirus, because COVID-19 is still happening. Uh, folks, I think that the an original narrative almost four months ago was, oh, that's something that's happening over there. I feel like we've got to get to a place where we understand the concept of global community. What happens over there in a whole other continent if it is not, if we don't support the building of, of strong infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure, educational infrastructure, helping to support, you know, whole democracies, we, yes. it, it will come to our doorstep. And so I, it's the extent that we are, there's an interconnectedness all around the world that, that, and there is the human and moral responsibility that we have to see every single citizen, every single human being have the ability to thrive. Everybody should have a living wage. Everybody should have health care insurance. And that's the thing is that folks are not asking to be rich. They're asking to, to live. They're asking to be able to, to, to function without having to worry about where the next meal is coming from or if they can lay their head down at night or if the rent's going to go up. Or, you know, or if, if their child, is, if they're one sickness away from being bankrupt because of the health care uh, coverage is limited. So these are all things that if we think about it, it, it and when you really get down to it, we're not asking for much. What we're really talking about when we get to the heart of this conversation today is we want cultural and subcultural change within any system. And the way you get to that, I actually gave part of the answer. And I'm going to give it again because I think that there's a role for repetition. At the end of the day, systems are intimately attached to people. People change when they feel something. And if people are changing, we increase the risk of systems changing. And how do we do that? We have to get people into what I call the feeling space. So that example that I, that I gave, that, that brief exercise that I did with you and Jason to ask you, I, I typically say, is there anybody in this room who has never been afraid? If you, we increase the risk for change when we increase understanding. I believe that 50% of our issue in the world is not an empathy gap, it's an mm-hmm. understanding gap. So if I can help you understand then you are more likely mm. to make the change that I need. And, and catch this. This is the last, last thing I'm going to say about this particular point. The, the, the lens at which we have traditionally asked folks to view the, the change that we want them to make from is one of diversity and equity. That's not a big enough lens. And it's not an acceptable not? lens anymore. Trauma. It's not, well, it's not an, it's, it's a reasonable lens, but here, catch me on this because this might be controversial. The wider lens is trauma. So if we can have folks view and understand trauma and understand how systems and even maybe individuals have perpetuated trauma, then we are more likely to get them to change. I'm not saying that diversity and inclusion and equity are not important things. They are. But they, they have not been wide enough to capture or to motivate the kind of change that we need right now. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I do. <laughs> I do. Well, in many ways, you're, you're saying that trauma is the root um, unless that root is tended to and fixed and addressed, that we essentially you can't move beyond that point. You can't move to fixing exactly, the, 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 the problems in the corridors of the system. We, let's think about this. Every single system, and you and you said it yourself, Henrietta. They they they've said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do diversity hires. It matters. We're listening. And and somewhere somebody said that listening is a form of love, or it should be. 
right? That's what we really want. But if you love me, mm-hmm. then it's, love is also demonstrated. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a verb. It's an action. So it's not just listening, but it's doing something too, right? I'm saying that, yes, equity is important. We want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to thrive within an organization. We've got to get beyond surviving, right? Because it's a privilege mm-hmm. to dream if for, for some. And we're saying we, that, should be, that should be a right. Everybody should have the right to dream right. and to accomplish their goals, right? And I'm saying we've had the equity discussions. We've had the diversity discussions. We've had the inclusion dis- discussions. The question that has still happened, I want something different. We can't continue with the same narrative if we want something different. So I'm saying, my question is, if I'm at the table, am I really at the table? We know what that means. There's a table that you create for optics where you're making it look like I have some some choice mm. in the matter. But then the real decision table oh, is I know that from experience. I'm telling you that's how it works. Do you see and what I'm, I'm saying? And that is so why what I'm, I'm cynical, say- though, because I think equity right. <laughs> is the answer because when they say yeah. we are listening and we are learning... fashion is largely about optics because it's predicated on sales, right? So for me, without that equity, who are you listening to and where is the learning coming from? How are you close to trauma if there is no equity? That's what I'm saying. Because these are largely rooms full of white people and white executives who are all talking amongst themselves saying, I've seen on social media people saying saying they're listening and learning, so let's say that. But if you are not in proximity to trauma and in proximity to smart black people or just black people in general who can talk to you about these issues, their trauma, candidly having discussions where you can unpack these themes, where is the listening and where is the learning and where is that proximity to trauma? So wouldn't equity be right up there so that you can get to the discussion of trauma? Do you see what I mean? Yes, don't get me wrong. Yes, I'm not saying that trauma, let, let, me, let me reword it because I think there might be a misunderstanding. I'm saying if we look traditionally at the discussions that we have ha- been having, the discussions have been and the lenses mm-hmm. have been, let's apply an equity lens. Let's apply a trauma lens. And my question to you, Jason and Henrietta, is has that gotten us the change that we need? I'm not saying we abandon those ideals. Not at all. I'm not saying that we abandon that approach. I'm saying what we really want is change, not the optics. Mm -hmm. I want to be at the decision-making table. So I'm saying, how do we effectively get to that place? I'm I'm with you. I agree with everything you have said, Henrietta. And I'm saying in order for us to move forward and to do something different, we have to talk about it different, we have to construct it different, and we have to impact people at the level that it becomes salient for them enough to move to make a change. Let me just give an example. So, So the wider lens, is trauma. It doesn't mean that we don't we don't continue to look through an equity lens. I'm saying if we want the change and we want people to get it, most white individuals understand fear because they've been afraid. So if they can understand it and then understand like, oh my gosh, it's like mind-blowing for some folks to, to sit there and think, wow, you're telling me that there are some folks who live among us who, who are afraid every day? And I'm saying, yes. Yes, there is. So now that you understand that, you're more likely to be open to even moving towards equity. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not saying we I'm not saying we abandon it. I'm not saying we abandon it because it hasn't been working historically. Yes. I hear this is what I'm trying to say. This is all I'm trying to say. I have one question to that point. And um what would you say to the question um there's been a lot of talk around power and and so a lot of the conversation is okay, how do we 
use this power. This is a powerful moment in a way that is productive and allows us to stay in our power because ultimately blackness has become so synonymous with suffering just in culture, you know, the, what is it? uh, Black poverty porn, you know, trade, not aid, all of that sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. But Also just in, in fashion, you know, again, it's like, oh, there she goes being angry there. She goes playing the race card. And there is this notion that every time we approach these conversations, it's from the angle of suffering. So to that point about trauma being the lens, how do we negate that? Do we need to negate that? Is it okay to be kind of coming from this place of suffering as black people? Like, I, I don't know how, I don't know. Well, I don't think it's a place of suffering though. It is, we're having folks understand what it is like, but then here's the, here's the second part of it. And you make a good point. Yes. But there's also resilience, right? It is, so So I think what is more powerful actually, and probably what is scary to most that they won't admit is my ancestors and your mm-hmm. ancestors taught themselves how to read. Okay, my ancestors and your ancestors, despite all of the measures taken against them systemically and structurally, have gotten beyond many points of just surviving and have, and, and have been able to, in some cases, thrive that we exist, that we can still find joy, that we can still center ourselves around something that's meaningful, mm-hmm. right? That we still show up even when we're scared, right? We, we show up not in the absence of fear, but in the presence of it, right? So that's the real story is that Black Americans and Black citizens all across this nation and the world have been able to uh, gain higher levels of education and to find ways to navigate spaces that are not welcoming to them. We've been doing that. And, and so it's not that we just rest on this, this idea of suffering and that's woe is us. That's not it at all. It's just the recognition that despite all of the suffering, we have still been able to rise to levels. And we're saying there's unnecessary suffering and there's inevitable suffering. And we're asking all of the nation to reduce the, mm-hmm. the instances of unnecessary suffering. That's all, that's all we're asking for. <laughs> Well, we're asking for more. That's what we're prioritizing. That's what I want. We're asking for a lot more, but we can't get into all that. (laughs) Well, doctor, let's let's turn the lens back in on us now. Let's let's look at that mirror and look at our community and look at the systems that are in our community that um, that hinders us from making the changes as well. Because part of the trauma is also we have the. ability to make that change from the from those um you know the the, the borders or the the, the hurdles inside mm-hmm. the community that being the church that being family that being machismo culture and things of that kind as a black lgbt plus individual i cannot help but to raise the issue of how and speak going back to that point of hurt people hurt people Going back to that point of like the trauma in our community still is meted out <laughs> to another community in such a brutal, in such a hurtful, in such a damning way. And as well, it's supported by the systems and the institution of the church and family and those sort of things. And I'm like, well, how are we supposed to unleash ourselves from the, the chains of that trauma it, if we're again, not cleaning up our own point, house, if you will. Uh, Jason, I think we have to work down parallel tracks. And again, in that recognition, it is the recognition that there are multiple things that have bound us internally uh, and have been reinforced externally. 
So it is the ability to start to really thoughtfully deconstruct inside of our own community the things that we have done to one another, the things that we continue to do, but and, and to also understand where that comes from. So because the, the, underneath all underneath all of that, and there is so much to unpack there, okay. but underneath all of that is where does where did that come from? What inspires that level of, you know, I have to find something different because it, it, it within every and, and point out the difference. I want to just highlight this point. Each of us went through a primary sort of instruction and educational process. And in that educational process, we learned, all of us learned uh, multiple things. And it's interesting because I just want to show you how all of this is baked into a system. And it's so subliminal and unconscious that most folks don't even think about it. But it's important to highlight. When you and I were in kindergarten, one of the basic things that we learned is, okay, Jason, Henrietta, and Alicia, what's the difference between a circle and, and, and a square? What's the difference between green and yellow, right? So we learned to make differences and to discriminate between different shapes and colors and numbers and patterns. But here's the thing. We were asked to make these differences and to appreciate the differences, but we weren't given any context for why, right? So you have children in a primary education system who are learning to notice differences, but to not necessarily respect them, right? It is for the mere intellectual exercise of just recognizing that something is different. So then you grow up into become adults who continue in that same pattern. And then folks ask the question, but why are you just paying attention mm-hmm. to the differences? Well, that's what folks were taught. So we there's some things that we have to fundamentally adjust and change. And, and these are the calls that I'm making, that I've made in my textbook, that I've made in, in my lectures. And so I actually address uh, that issue, Jason, in the textbook where I'm like, we have to fundamentally think about how we have taught these things and how it's subliminal and then how it shows up later in portions of our lives that we need to, that we got to check. And I also believe that we have to redefine what power is because for some reason I want to get back because I think, Jason, you were alluding to this and you as well, Henrietta, because you're like, well, we don't want to just stick stick on suffering. You're right. Where we also want to move to is this point that um, each and every single individual has their own sense of personal power. And it is not defined by money or by external means. It is an internal power. It is a knowing and a centering around who you are and a sense of identity and a culture and a heritage and, and, and being able to call out by name. My husband's from Angola, Africa. My children know where their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents are from and, and what they built and their legacy and their leadership. And there is something incredibly important about knowing who you are as a sense of anchoring, as a sense of, uh, as a sense of having a, a personal power. And then that is exuded, that sense of personal power and confidence and self-efficacy is exuded in other things. And it mm-hmm. makes it hard for you to be broken. But I also feel like there's a role for brokenness as well. Broken pieces can be functional. Those, those sharp edges can, be, can definitely be transformed. I mean, if so, you look at a lot of the works that exactly. come out of the Black community and Black culture, look at rap music, look at arts, look at poetry. Exactly. There's so much that can be right. interpreted into beautiful stories and messaging. And I definitely believe that to be true. Uh, well, Henrietta, you speak to this being a watershed moment. I've been speaking about this being a historic, a really historic moment. But I, I think that, you know, that can be <laughs> sort of like superfluous, let's say. Doctor. Do you feel, drawing on your historic knowledge, 
do you feel that this is a pivotal moment for us as Black people to create that change? Uh, some of those changes that you've been speaking of, we've all been speaking about in this conversation. Is it that time? Here's what I'll say. If we look historically to get to this moment, it was a buildup. It was a that what happened uh, to Rodney King, what happened to Trayvon Martin, what actually happened during the civil rights era, what happened to MLK, what happened to Malcolm X. All of these things were a build up to this particular mm-hmm. instance. So we can't ignore what came before. And I believe that that buildup has gotten us to a, a, a point where a change is the only way forward. We can't go back. And so I see it as there are young people and, and young people of all races, of all socioeconomic backgrounds who want a different world than their parents and grandparents lived in. They've said, we, we see what we need in order to, we're going to be inheriting this and we want better. And that is what gives me so much joy is that, that every single young person, they're saying, uh-uh, we're, we, we, business as usual will be no longer this is day, what, 13 of folks being in the streets and they're like, we are not leaving until there's some real structural demonstrable mm-hmm. changes. You will see us yeah. every night until change happens. And so I feel the sense of energy. I appreciate the sense of responsibility. I love the fact that we're getting back to humanity. And so I'm saying it is a new day. And, and that's the hope. And I love um, you how, how beautifully the both of you described the utility or the functionality of broken pieces that they become lovely. Mo- it can be a, become a lovely mosaic. And that is what we are building. And I want to end on that piece on the hope that the hope that we will be better because we have to, and because our young people and in multi-generational, but our young people are spearheading it are leading it. And, and they've got the generations, they've got the ancestors behind mm. them and I we will that. get to a I better place. I could talk to you forever. We I can, this is, this is a this is um, very powerful. Like, I, I, I was just, about I to say the same thing, Henrietta. I was I like, I could This is really powerful and, and I think I wanted to end on one kind of more actionable note. You know, we're gonna put your book in, in the show notes sure, and sure, encourage sure. people to pick it up and really just do the do the work and the deep dive. Sure. Um but the reality is that yeah. fashion is it's largely built off of, you know, aesthetics and, and messaging and and trading off of energy that might not that is that is often translated into dollars somehow, right? We're already seeing it with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. It's you know mm-hmm. buy this T-shirt and a percentage of the proceeds go to X because they know that they can make more sales based off of what you know putting it through the lens of what people care about right now. Um, so I guess I say that to mm-hmm. say fashion is a system and it is the way that it is right now. It's obviously transitioning and it's changing, but a lot of us, I still have to operate and function within that as part of a lot of the stories that I was getting after the op-ed, you know, just crazy accounts of what is happening as a result of Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening right now and Black employees being sidelined or continue to be silent. Or do you remember that racist thing I said the other day? If you say anything, you could be terminated. you like just crazy accounts of people trying to deflect and blame and cover their tracks and use this for sales and marketing, etc. Given that that's largely the system that exists now, what are the tools that we as Black people functioning in the space as it currently exists 
how can we protect ourselves? I know there's the whole check-in with your mental health, check-in with your Black friends. We know that we should try and get as much sleep, work out, do things that bring us joy, connect with our family. You know, a lot of the things that we do to help ourselves um, are limited because of COVID and quarantine, et cetera. But are there any sort of tangible or just even pieces of advice on how we can protect ourselves while existing in the system as it is today? Exactly. And I think you've mentioned some good ones. And I would say from a strategic, systemic point that I do believe that it's also time for the Black uh, employee resource groups uh, to get together and to specifically within any system or organization and specifically ask for someone to come in to construct an agenda for how to support the overall wellness and ability for Black individuals to thrive within the organization. That should be a specific ask. And to have that person also review all of the policies and practices in a very thoughtful way. It's time for that. Because we can't just have, again, just hiring up folks without changing of specific things that impact folks. And then to the extent that that can be done, it would be incredibly powerful. Uh, also, if people are, are purchasing you know, books and things like that, those books need to have very specific, uh, thoughtful approaches that can be taken to move an, an, an agency forward. And so... Uh, yes, on the one hand, you, you definitely want to be mindful of your mental wellness and pursue some, there's a role for everybody. There's a role for mama, grandma, a role for the church, but there is also a very important role for a professional. It's important. I, and I challenge every Black citizen to go get the help that, and support that they deserve in the form of a therapist or a counselor because it allows you the opportunity to co-examine. Because many of the folks that you talk to, I bet what they say mm-hmm. underneath it is, Folks make me feel like I'm the paranoid one or I'm making this up, right? And, right, exactly. Or, or I'm, you know, and, and there's no validation, right? So, so folks are, are and, and to some extent, people start to believe that, well, well, maybe it is all in my head. And, and, and so it's important for that reason to go to a culturally specific provider where you can co-examine these things and to get the support around structurally. There's a whole process around skills building and building resilience and self-efficacy so that you know that it's not all in your head. And we know that now. The world has the world is now recognizing this is not all in people's head. It's a very real phenomenon. So it has to be structural, systemic, and individual. It's both. Um, and so it has to be a part of the strategic plan. If you're doing any uh, financial sustainability planning, there's one large company, and I won't say the name, who has been who has been getting this thing right from 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 jump, all the way back when when Brother Man decided he was going to take a knee. This this particular company said we're going to support this brother. We're going to do da 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 da, and then came out with one of the most powerful statements, and then demonstrated that by making some changes around their policies. Right? I would just be asking each of these, like the fashion world, to take a to take a beat from some of, of these major corporations uh, and to use them as case studies for what can be done and what might be done to, to, for immediate relief, for intermediate relief, and for long-term, right? Because there are some mm-hmm. things that just have to be done different, like effective today. If you walk into your office and the first thing you, you feel is your heart rate going up, then that's, that's not going to work, right? So, um, so th- that's what I can say sort of in the immediate. Well, Doctor, as Henrietta said, I could literally talk to you for hours, and um, but I think we're going to have to revisit that in another episode. Sure. But I 
so appreciate what you delivered to us here uh, today. I, I, I feel like I have to <laughs> leave this recording and go and sit down and fully process all of this uh, salient content that you, you have given have us. Been Thank you so much, a fantastic uh, Doctor, for joining us. Source of episode. both knowledge yes. and inspiration, and I just wanted to say that you know. I'm really glad we did this. I think it was really meaningful to us personally, but I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people that are listening. I think we don't talk enough about Black trauma in detail and contextualise it and show how it impacts all facets of what we're fighting against, both within ourselves and within the system of fashion. So I could not thank you more for taking the time to join us. And I think like many great conversations we have on the podcast, we're like, okay, we need to revisit this and and have 10 other conversations. We could talk to you all day. So just thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank thank you both, um, Jason and Henrietta, for what you're doing. And I just want you to know, I see you, I hear you, uh, I stand with you. And and so thank you for hosting these conversations. uh, And I hope that that you're doing what you need to do as well to, to stay well. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye-bye. It's my time for something.